Good morning. So this morning we are starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of James over the next five weeks. And we're calling this series Walk This Way, not because it's yet another 80s reference to a Run DMC song, but because the theme of this whole letter that James wrote is the practice of the Christian life. It's how we walk what we talk about. James tells us the difference that Christian faith should make in our everyday lives is huge. And he asks us, he asks us directly, he asks us pointedly, are you living this out? You could think of this as the least Canadian book in the Bible, maybe. James is not polite. He's coming after us. He figures we've had enough theory. We've been to enough Bible studies. We know enough theology. He's going to demand action from us. And I think we need this book of the Bible to wake us up from our complacency. So James is a different kind of letter. Maybe you're used to some of the possibly more high-profile letters in the New Testament. James isn't like the letters that Paul wrote, for example. James doesn't make a linear argument the way Paul does famously. And so this book is sometimes called New Testament wisdom literature, kind of like Old Testament wisdom writings such as Proverbs. It's full of little sayings. It's full of pieces of wisdom that you could put on a bumper sticker, that you could put on your fridge. It doesn't hold together the way a sustained argument would. Now, these are called aphorisms. And you will recognize in the book of James a ton of sayings that maybe you didn't realize were from this book of the Bible. And and really, you could imagine Jesus saying a lot of these things also, like in the Sermon on the Mount, wisdom for the everyday life of those who are trying to follow Jesus. So I'm pretty sure you're going to love this book, especially if you're not familiar with it. Let's pray before we open our Bibles to James chapter 1. Dear God, we thank you that your word is so diverse. We also, as we come to it, want to acknowledge that it's hard to understand. And it actually drives us crazy as well sometimes. We have a love-hate relationship with your word, maybe we could say. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you sort that out? Not so that it's all neat and tidy, but so that your word, which it says in Hebrews, is alive, is active, is like a sword that cuts in the best possible way deep within us, would give us new life, would encourage us, would challenge us, would comfort us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read from James 1 in two parts this morning. The first part we're going to read right now, and that's James 1, 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how letters were begun in that time. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people, the Jewish people scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. So James continues, Greetings! Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? So this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus, or more accurately, the half-brother of Jesus. But James, we know, was not a member of the Jesus fan club. Mark tells us in his gospel that after Jesus became famous around Galilee for his amazing teaching and his miracles of healing, James and the other siblings of Jesus thought that Jesus had gone out of his mind. In John's gospel, it says that not even his brothers believed Jesus. Where was the loyalty? How could they not have believed? They had a front row seat for everything Jesus was doing, the person he was. Could you imagine your family not believing in you? Well, if you have brothers and sisters, of course you can. I have a younger brother. We used to fight a lot. It got pretty violent at times. Once I shot him in the head with an arrow. It was an arrow with a metal tip. My brother Kenneth really didn't see the whole pastor thing coming, I have to tell you. (laughs) We can't hide from our siblings. They know us better than anyone, and at times that can breed resentment. For James, it was only natural that he would have felt a little jealous about living in his big brother's shadow all the time. He must have felt what we call sibling rivalry in his relationship with Jesus, even if he knew at some level that he couldn't hope to compete. And yet, James later had a dramatic change of heart. He came to believe that Jesus was, in fact, God's son. And he even gave his life for his faith. He was martyred 30 years after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. How can we explain the change that took place in James's life? Well, only one way, I would suggest. It took the resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Christ appeared to James alone. 
James got this one-on-one meeting with his brother, and then he believed. One thing's for sure, James wouldn't have been fooled if somebody had made it up. He knew his brother. He wouldn't have fallen for an imposter. But he saw Jesus, and he believed. So resurrection changes everything. It changed everything for James, and it changes everything for us, too. Do we really believe that Jesus suffered and died for the forgiveness of our sins? Do we believe that he was raised from the dead to defeat death, to save us from hell, to give us eternal life? Well, if we believe that, what do we have to be afraid of then? Being stoned to death? Being fed to the lions? Being beheaded? That's what happened to James. James and the other apostles faced all of that and more. And today, Christians around the world face persecution and death more than at any other time in the history of the church. But as James writes this letter, and as he starts it with some pretty amazing intensity, he isn't just encouraging us to overcome our fear. He says even more than that. He says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then he goes on to say that that same testing, those same trials also produce wisdom and faith. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with that. Are we really supposed to consider it pure joy? when things go terribly wrong in our lives. Consider it pure joy when you lose your job. Consider it pure joy when you fail at school or in your career. Consider it pure joy when you get sick or have a health crisis or someone you love does. Consider it pure joy when a close relationship, a friendship, maybe your marriage, starts to fall apart. Consider it pure joy when you're lonely When you're depressed, is that really what James is saying here? Well, I think, yes, that is exactly what he's saying. How could he not say that? After all, his life had been transformed by Jesus. Jesus, who suffered the worst trials, the worst pain, the worst suffering ever on the cross out of his love for us. And God the Father transformed that suffering into the source of our greatest joy. Do we not believe that God could do that with our suffering also? Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist and a writer, wrote about his experience in Nazi concentration camps during World War II. Even when he was faced with the most terrible evil and suffering, Frankl said that he and his fellow prisoners in Dachau and Auschwitz had a choice. He wrote, every day, every hour, you had a decision, decision which determined whether you would submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom. You could choose not to give in to circumstance and not to lose your freedom and dignity. Frankel is saying here that we always have a choice when we face adversity, when we go through trials. We can let the circumstance crush us, or we can choose freedom. 
And this coming from someone who lived through the Holocaust and saw the very worst evil and suffering. We have to take that seriously. Now, James, I think, would agree with that, but he would go even farther. He would say that our Heavenly Father takes our worst trials and transforms them into something good for us. Over the years, when I have those conversations in which people are prepared to share with me their their doubts about faith and their struggles, there's one question that comes up more than any other. And that is, how can I believe in a God who allows so much suffering in this world, in my life? Because our culture cannot conceive that suffering would actually, could actually be good for us. In fact, we've gotten to a point in our culture, I think, where suffering is the ultimate evil, the thing to be avoided at almost any cost. We think sometimes, even as Christians, we think, If God is really there, he would protect us from all trials and all suffering. But that is not what the Bible says. And James knows that sometimes the best, most loving thing our Heavenly Father can do for us is to let us go through trials and suffering. Because those trials are what God uses to nurture in us patience and wisdom and a deeper faith. The truth, I think, is that we only really learn when we suffer. At least that has been my experience. And our God went to the cross to show us that he's with us through all our pain, that he will never leave us. So what is the hard thing right now that God is asking you to persevere through? I think almost all of us have something like that. Can you name that thing in your mind? Why don't we right now just stop and pray about that? Maybe for you it's more than one thing. Maybe it feels like there's so much in the way of trials and difficulties in your life at the moment that you can hardly bear it. Maybe for you it's someone else who you know who's going through something like that. I invite you to bow your head with me and to ask God for wisdom because that is what James tells us to do and says that God will always provide it. Let's do that now. Dear God, you are a good God and every perfect gift comes from you. We read that here in James 1 also. Lord, we want to trust you. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. And now, Lord, in the silence, we lift up to you whatever circumstance it is that threatens to crush us or someone we know. And we ask for wisdom. Lord, in your mercy, 
hear our prayers. Amen. Let's read some more of James. This is James 1, verses 19 to 27. James continues. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This too is the word of the Lord. So James says here that we need to humbly accept God's word, even that our salvation depends on it. How do we do that? Well, first, we need to look intently into the perfect law. And this word intently shows up somewhere else in the New Testament. It's the word that describes how Peter one of the disciples looked intently into the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Now, when Peter did that, when Peter looked into the tomb and saw that it was empty, and it began to dawn on him that Jesus was not there and what that meant, do you think that Peter was thinking to himself, oh, that's interesting, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's a fascinating theological development in my doctrinal outlook. No, I think I think Peter was so full of excitement and expectation, so consumed by the amazing thing that he was witnessing, so focused, so attentive. How intently do we study the Bible? What is your practice around looking intently into God's word? That's the first thing. Then there's the mirror. The word of God is not just a book full of ideas, full of theological truths. No, most of all, the Bible shows you who you are. Scripture is powerful and personal. The Holy Spirit speaks to you through it. He counsels you. And the result is, according to James, that as you look into the perfect law, you are blessed. And what is the blessing? Freedom.
Now hold on a second here. How can law bring freedom? Does that make any sense? We struggle with this, I think, because we assume that freedom is the absence of restrictions. We have a certain definition of freedom in our minds. The Bible wants to shift our thinking on that. The Bible says you're free when you live out your true nature. Think of a fish with me for a second, okay? If freedom is the absence of restrictions, then a fish should be able to get up and say, well, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to get out of this water. I'm going to see what it's like on dry land. But of course, unless that fish restricts itself to the water, it will lose its freedom. It will die. Real freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's finding the right restrictions that go with your nature. Or here's another way to think of it. When you buy a car, you get an owner's manual, right? And if you're smart, you're going to read the owner's manual. And you may notice that you're supposed to add oil to the engine once in a while. Well, maybe you don't want to do that. You say, look, I'm not comfortable with adding oil to the engine. That's expensive for one thing. I don't want to put my money into that. And also, I don't have time. I'm a very busy person. I don't have time, even at those 10-minute oil change places. But the designer of the car might reply, look, I built the car, buddy. If you don't put oil into it, no one's going to arrest you. But you're only going to hurt yourself. Eventually, you'll destroy the thing. And so the owner's manual offers restrictions, but they're all for the sake of the car, according to its nature. If you want to be free to drive that car and to enjoy it, you're going to have to restrict yourself to what the owner's manual says. True freedom is living with restrictions that are based on who you are designed to be, your nature. To give one big example of this, The Bible says you must forgive. It doesn't say you only have to forgive when you feel like that, when you're in the mood for that, when the other person has done the adequate abject apologizing. The Bible says forgive. Why? And wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it feel better to hold on to that grudge? Just to feed it a little feels so good, that grudge. Why does the Bible say you must forgive? Because God forgives. And you are made in his image. And for you to be healthy at every level, I would suggest, even the physical, you must forgive. If you don't, it will kill you. You'll be like that fish on the sidewalk. How do you know if you've been shaped by God's word? Well, in verse 27, James gives us a definition of religion, a way of checking out how we're doing. Two things he identifies. First of all, he says that true religion 
is looking after orphans and widows. And secondly, it's keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. So here's how you know if your faith is real. You will care about the poor. And to look after here isn't just providing a handout. It's advocating. It's not even working for. It's being with. That's what God calls us to. The second thing is inner purity. In Amos 2, God accuses his people of trampling on the poor and of sexual immorality. These two things, hand in hand. The Bible keeps them together. Now you think about liberal churches. They tend to focus on justice for the oppressed, right? But they also tend to avoid individual morality and they don't want to be judgmental about sex, that's for sure. Well, now think about conservative churches. They do the same thing in reverse. They neglect justice for the oppressed and they're all about individual morality, not crossing those boundaries. And sex, well, yeah, they're famous for being judgmental about that. The word of God is neither liberal nor conservative. The word of God holds these things together, even as the Holy Spirit calls us together into communities where we can disagree, where we are diverse. The Christian life is a call to both personal purity and to social responsibility. When we get that wrong, we've entered into some of the darkest times in the history of the church. I want to talk just a little bit more about the second part of that, the social responsibility. One of my favorite writers, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, has an article in the latest issue of The Atlantic magazine about the breakdown of the family. And this is family day long weekend, right? So it seems like we could talk about this right now, especially. Brooks calls the nuclear family, you know, Mom, dad, 2.5 kids. He calls it a mistake. He says it arises from our modern hyper-individualism. And he actually goes so far as to say it has been a disaster for the most vulnerable in our society. And it has led to the epidemic of loneliness that we see out there in our world right now. And he says we need to find new models for what he calls extended family what families used to be like if you go back to the 19th century. He's not saying we need to go back to that, but he's saying what if we could extend the reach, the care, the goodness of family once again. And then he gives examples of what he calls forged families, where people adopt those who are not blood relatives into their community. A kinship community, he calls it. Well, as I was reading that, I thought, isn't that exactly what church is? When church is at its best, in my experience, it looks like that extended family, that forged family. Have you considered adoption recently? If you're going to obey God's command to look after widows and orphans, you're going to need to adopt people into your family. 
You're going to need to be part of the creation of new family forged by the Holy Spirit. So how are you doing that? James would say right away, show me the evidence. Who do you know who lives alone? Maybe you do yourself. How could you get people together? Orphans are not just orphans. They're kids whose parents don't care. They're students and young adults away from home. They're young families who don't have support. And widows are not just widows. They're older men and women who are suffering from loneliness, who don't have that extended family nearby. Have you adopted anyone into your life lately in a way that stretches you? James says, if you haven't, you are not living a Christian life, period. This family, family day long weekend may have opened up some time for you to spend time with your nuclear family. And I want to bless you in that. I think that is fantastic. I love this long weekend. But I hope we'll listen to James too. I hope that we will look intently into the word of God and also into what's going on in the world around us and that we will walk the way that's true, that we will practice the Christian life as Jesus calls us to practice it. It won't be easy. There will for sure be trials. It will not fit in with our own interests. It will run against the culture. But there is joy that way, a deeper joy. And most of all, there's a crown of life. But that's not enough. Do you realize there's only one person who ever went through trials and passed the test? Only one person who did what the word of God says. And that was Jesus. And that's where we must always end. That, I think, is where James really points us, even as he's saying, these things are non-negotiable. You must practice them if you are a believer. When you look into the word of God, it can't just be a mirror. You can't just see yourself. You have to see Jesus He was the only one who ever fulfilled this perfect law that James writes about. Paul says in Romans 8, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That and that alone is our hope. Jesus took the penalty for our failure to keep the law. The wrong view of religion leads us to think that we have to work in order to be accepted by God, that we have to earn it. Here in James 1, we see that because we have been accepted by God, only then can we work freely and joyfully. And this happens, it only happens when you look into the perfect law and see the only one who ever perfectly kept the law. We love because we have been loved. We serve because we have been served. We humble ourselves because one greater than us humbled himself even to the point of death. And Jesus is risen. He is Lord of all. All God's people said.
Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have plans for us. How disappointing it would be if all we had to do was pray a prayer, was believe something, was check things off on a list, and then we were done. That was it. But you and your word are alive. You are moving. You are making all things new. Lord, would you help us to receive your grace? Would you help us to respond to the reality of your love, the presence of your spirit, by being part of what you're forging in the world? A new family. You adopted us. Would you send us out today to adopt others, to come alongside others in the freedom that your spirit always supplies? Amen. I think most of you know by now that we're in the midst of an elder election here at Courtright and Nominations for elders have closed, but there are people in our congregation right now who are wrestling with whether they should let their name stand. And so as part of this process, we wanted to kind of raise your awareness about what elders do and who they are and how they're called to that role. And so today is the third and final uh elder testimony we've been calling them uh, and I would invite Tanya Wright up to share a little bit of her story with us. Thank you. Thanks for lowering that. Well, yeah, my name's Tanya and I just want to uh thank thank you for this opportunity to share briefly um about my experience of serving as an elder here at uh Courtright. So um, after being nominated by a friend um, and obtaining the sufficient congregational votes, um, I came on board with session in 2018. Um, Just some first impressions that I had. um, Andrew Isaac really is the most organized person you've ever met. Um, another thought that I had was, um, I don't know if they have meetings in heaven, but if they do, Joan Polarized Baking will be there. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So um, as the weeks and months went on, um, I had the opportunity to see this group of men and women, our elders, press into the decision uh, to go to one service permanently and also to approve the um, required renovations to our sanctuary, which we, uh, I think we dedicated that last week. Um, and it's really a thing of beauty to see and actually be part of such a diverse and unified team who want to honor God. Um, my nervousness was swallowed up in the consistent focus on God's goodness and provision. And my faith in God's goodness and greatness continue to grow. And I'm really being blessed by these relationships. 
Um, I've also really appreciated the trust that you as a church community have shown me in allowing me to serve in this capacity. And I can't let this opportunity escape as part of the outreach team. Um, I'd just like to express how much we need all of our gifts to be a healthy expression of God's love to our friends and our neighbors. And I want to thank all of you who are so mindful of making people um, feel welcome here at Courtright. Thank you.